0: So close your eyes for a moment and think of that one, or perhaps more than one, exasperating, anguish and moment in your life where you were challenged or more than just a moment of awkwardness. You felt like the world was caving in on you. Close your eyes, think about it for a moment, just for a moment. I know we don't want to dwell on it, but think about it and realize and realize things could always be worse, couldn't they? could always be worse, maybe. Overboard, lost, trying to breathe underwater. I had a good friend of mine that had this happen to him once. This isn't my friend, but if you've ever gone overboard in a boat, especially on a whitewater rapid trip, and you're not knowing what's going to happen, you don't know if you're going to surface, you don't know if you're going to hit rocks. (laughs) What happens? Completely out of control, being taken over. Not a place most of us would like to be. But sometimes in life, we find ourselves in those situations. And as such, I'm going to put some of you into that situation right now for the men in the congregation here gathered. Listen up. There was a survey taken about 10, 15 years ago. The survey went along much like this picture behind me, and this survey asked for men, if you were Canoeing or in a boat on a river, and the boat gets flipped over, and you're overboard, and you're like this guy. And you happen to go boating with your mom and your wife. You know where I'm going with this? And you could only save one of them. Who would you save? Who would you save? Now, there were a few in the previous service where there was a couple gentlemen who had wife and mom sitting literally in the pews, and I really felt sorry for them. So, I know this is an awkward moment right now, a moment of anguish, but think about it. What's interesting is in places like the United States and in the developed world, most men responded by saying, save the wife. Why? Well, maybe there's kids. Maybe there's the hope of having kids. Maybe it's the hope of the future generation of moving on. And we love mom, but if we had to make a choice, say la vie. Here it is. I know, for some moms right now in the congregation, you know. But what was interesting is when this survey was taken in the developing part of the world, places like sub-Saharan Africa or Asia, the response was the opposite. The man saved mom. Maybe he didn't like the wife, I don't know, but that was the case. Now, why? Now, the flippant response would be, well, you can always remarry, but that doesn't quite embrace this cultural context that I think many of us in this part of the world might struggle with. Because in the developing part of the world, people like moms or dads, we can flip roles here, are seen as being, especially in places of an oral tradition, people of authority, of legacy, of inherited wisdom being passed down. And to lose a figure like that would be detrimental not just to that immediate family that's gone canoeing, but the whole family structure beyond that, the extended family, the tribe, the clan, all that goes beyond that. And I think we here in the West, we, we don't quite get that of being beholden and obedient to the will of what's come before us, because let's be honest, I think we still get this. Do mama have a strong will sometimes in our family? Mama have a strong will? Does Daddy? Yeah. I think we get that, but it goes beyond just us and our needs and our wants. I think we struggle with that as Americans, because in particular. Our nation was founded by people fleeing religious persecution, and one of the things that they brought over here that was important for them was this idea of the will of God as being the most powerful thing, the central belief. It's not that Lutherans don't have that focus, but for many customs and churches coming over, that was it. The funny thing is now, as the United States becomes increasingly secular, like the rest of the developed world, we've just chopped off God, kept the will, and inserted our self before will. So, our will becomes paramount and the driving thing. And as you've probably heard preached many times before, the new anthem for the new age has become Frank Sinatra's, I did it my way. Or 15 years ago, that Burger King commercial that many of you still love to sing, how's it go? You can do it your way. Whatever we want. Think of all the choices and the details you have. You get an online survey for whatever service. It's amazing. All the things you can specify. We no longer have three networks on television. We are overloaded with opportunities to choose this, this, and that. It is amazing. My father recently bought a car. He came to me. He was overwhelmed. He didn't know what to pick from. Not just a color. You got to do this. You got to do Does it drive? <laughs> He was overwhelmed. Sometimes I think we're so overwhelmed because things are so catered to our will that we forget the bigger picture of what we've inherited, let alone God's will. God's will. Now for Lutherans, the Lutheran tradition, God's will is important, but we often think of that in the context of the Lord's Prayer. And over our sermon series here in Lent, we've been looking at the the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, and we're on petition number three, so it's quiz time. Thy will be done on as it is in... It's not bad, but I don't know if you'd pass some of our classes here. We've got to work on that. On earth as it is in heaven. The will. Will is a strong word. We find it laced throughout the Bible. We might think of it with Paul, who's passionately speaking about justification. We might think about it with God's will, the very acts of creation... We might think of it with at the end of things, with God's will, as John shares us what will happen in Revelation. God's will is powerful indeed. It is true. It is good. It is acceptable. And like this river behind me that you see, it's not unlike that. It has purpose and direction. And for those of us standing on the bank, we might not get that from our vantage point, but that river is going somewhere. We might not understand in the moment. We might not understand all the power and the froth being kicked up. But it has meaning and purpose even for us. Even for us. It shapes our faith. It gives us all the things that we hold dear. It leads us in life, in law and gospel. But beyond that, to us. God's will is relational. It is relational to us, to follow us in obedience. Not our will, but Thy will. And that brings me to the other word I want to highlight here for a moment, not just will, God's will. What we often say, as we will say later on at the Eucharistic table, we will say, thy will. Now, for some of us, these and thou's always sound funny. Are we trying to sound highfalutin and any of that stuff? And why, why do we still say, thy will be done? Why don't we just say, your will? And some churches do. I'm not going to necessarily get into the contemporary traditional debate, but one of the things I love about the fact that we keep thy will is in Old English, thy was a personal pronoun. It meant you knew each other. It implied there was a personal connection, a personal relationship. The French language still preserves that when they say tu instead of vous. It's insulting to say to somebody you know, vous. It would be to some extent here if you said, hey you, to your best friend. We we don't do that. Thy will underscores this personal connection that God wants with us. Now the rest of the petition that I quizzed you guys with on earth as it is in heaven is a trickier matter. And churches debate it. Debate it at great length. What does this mean? Are we supposed to make the world now more like heaven? And how do we do that? What should the church be doing or Or is that playing God, and we should wait for the end of things as we read about in the book of Revelation? And some churches go to one extreme and turn the church basically into a social service institution, and that's the end of it. And some go to the other extreme and turn the church into some isolated bunker for the frozen chosen. One of the things I love about Luther in his small catechism is that he steers a middle course and reminds us that God strengthens us. God keeps us, the word he loved to use was steadfast, firm in his word and faith unto the end of the ages. What I love about that is Luther reminds us that obedience is what comes first with any of these things that the world throws at us. Are we being obedient? And do we live that out in our lives? Now, the gospel reading for today provides a very powerful witness of God Himself being obedient to Himself, His truth, His fulfillment of His own will. That might sound awkward, but it it makes sense, especially if we we take the heart of what we just heard from with this, this powerful reading from Gethsemane. We sometimes call it the agony, the agony of Jesus. Agony, we often think of that word of great personal anguish and anxiety. We might think of that as what precedes the death of a loved one as they experience agony. Not something we want to dwell on, but yet it's a part of life, isn't it? We've all experienced some degree of agony and we want to move on from it. But yet it's there. It's there. I think many of us might think of this moment of Jesus praying to His Father like this. This picture by a famous German painter, last name Hoffman. Many of us love this painting because it plays on the darkness and yet the light is there. A motif we find throughout scripture. is very haunting. brings about the simplicity of the words that Jesus prays. Here's another take on it. Go from the Germans to the French. This is Gauguin. Painted this when he was in the tropics. Struggling. What I find fascinating and just moving in this painting is he uses blue, a color often associated with peace and relaxation, but he uses it here in contrast to other colors to to drive home this, this anguish that our Lord is suffering, this passion about to begin. And that's the heart of where we're at in this gospel reading. It's amazing when you think about it because we have here Jesus moving from the powerful words of the Last Supper to the beginning of the Passion with His arrest. We're in the middle. Jesus is being pulled between these two powerful events, but we also find this even geographically speaking as Jesus moves from Jerusalem to Mount Zion and back again. Two hills, and this is taking place in the valley in between. It's both a high point and a low point in Scripture. The divinity of who Jesus is, and the humanity, but yet not separated, but yet still one. Jesus is one person. We can't separate this suffering as, well, this is just the human side of Jesus. No, this is the whole Jesus. Then both natures are suffering and experiencing this agony, this press of obedience. And that's literally what Gethsemane means. An olive press The site you see behind me is an actual olive press still in use today in the Holy Land. See there, a donkey driving it, some guy whipping behind it. What I love about this image that you see is that big stone wheel going around and around and grinding and smashing and flattening until all the oil is out of the fruit that's not unlike agony, isn't it? You feel like you're being pressed as far as humanly possible and then beyond even that. Very telling. Very telling. So, Jesus is here in the Isle of Press. So, what happens next? Well, it's pretty simple. He prays three times. The disciples, eh, they fall asleep three times. As we hear in that famous line, the flesh is indeed weak. And we can think of all the times we failed to be there for someone or some situation where we should have kept watch, but other things of our own will took over when we should have been awake. We should have followed the law, but we fell short. They fall into temptation, a reminder of the fifth petition yet to come. But this is not about the disciples right now. This is about Jesus himself. And this takes us all the way back to the first petition, the very beginning of the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. As Pastor Shellhorn reminded us at the very outset of Lent, when Jesus prays, as he did with Our Father who art in heaven, Jesus prays here Abba, Daddy, how personal can you get? Daddy, my Father, whom all things are possible, God's will. But Jesus, but Jesus isn't at the Sermon of the Mount right now telling us how to pray. Jesus is under the shadow of the Passion, living out this prayer in that moment. God made flesh, prayers of agony, sweat like blood. Make this night pass, he says. Make this darkness pass. Remove this cup. Take this cup. What is this cup? The cup indeed that was prophesied in Isaiah 51, the cup of wrath. The cup of us falling short. The same cup that Jesus was already challenged and asked by when two disciples were sleeping before him. John and James came up to him earlier in Mark's gospel and asked, hey, can I be at your right hand? Jesus says, well, before we even get there, you have to drink from this cup. But the son must drink it first. The son must suffer first. And the son must suffer for our disobedience and yet also for our salvation. All of this, these prayers, this witness is a million miles away from a culture that wants to always assert its will with every conceivable thing, not just how we want our cars to look or our houses to look, but even the small things that we think are good in the moment but drive us away from God's will. Things like glamorizing violence, things that numb us like opioid abuse, things that make us just want to clock out, tales of different ways. Some cultures are embracing euthanasia of clickbait pornography and choices that will make our lives easier so we don't have to face the reality of, of being uncomfortable, let alone the reality of pain and suffering, at least at our expense. Hmm. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense sometimes because we think this is what's right in the moment, but it's not about our will, is it? But Jesus gets that. That's perhaps the most moving part of this passage for many people. Jesus gets it. Jesus gets the temptation. Jesus understands the weight of sin. Jesus understands the weight of glory. The weight of the olive press smashing down. The dilemma of choosing the good of the moment versus God's will. Hmm. It doesn't make sense, but it's very much like breathing underwater. Take us back to that very first image. Breathing underwater, the overturned boat. The dilemma of who to save. We get a taste of this anxiety and agony in this lifetime, but here in the garden, to be obedient means Jesus must cease to breathe in order to save and for us to live. And to save those asleep, those cast overboard from the boat, those in the darkness of sin. Not what I will, but what you will. Obedience. To breathe underwater. Hmm. Someday the earth will indeed be married to heaven. In the meantime, we are obedient. So great pastor... What does that look like now? What does this look like 2,000 years from Gethsemane? How do we live out thy will being done in a world today with all of these choices, all of these temptations just to click out and fall asleep? How do we make this happen? Paul reminds us, I think, eloquently today with this contrast of light and darkness. Choose the light. Avoid the darkness. And I think we we get that plan image, but I want to take this even further because it's often been said that the church shines its brightest when it is surrounded by darkness. And I think that makes sense. I was coming across some articles in the news that we often don't hear about and should hear more about about churches being persecuted in the world today. In a place where I had met friends many years ago during my seminary days, Um, Good Christians from Nigeria, a place in the world where persecution is intensely active. Before you even get to persecution, you have floods like we have here on one scale, but then you have droughts, you have famines, you have tribal conflict, whose mother to listen to. You have the intensity of people's wills being asserted in every way, including radical Islamists, Boko Haram, and all of that. And yet, whenever I have met people from from Nigeria, active Christians, one of the things I love about the tales that they tell is that they're living joyously in the face of persecution. All the choices that they don't have, that we have, that doesn't matter to them, and nor do they want them. The main thing is the main thing. picture I recalled recently with a church I remember hearing once affiliated about as I zip through the Passion. We see Jesus praying in the garden, but yet today we have people in a posture like this, a posture of praise, with persecution and bloodshed all around them. I don't want to get too ecumenical here, but one of the things I always hear from, yeah, there's Lutherans over there, and Anglicans, and Catholics, but they all have to get along. You know Why? because they don't have a choice. Not because somebody's telling them they have to, but because God's will is that present in their lives. The light is that bright, and they live it out with Scripture, Word, sacrament, and also the needs of what it takes to keep these communities going in darkness. I think that's a great way to look at how we keep this obedience to thy will alive in the world to remember where the church is persecuted, but also even in our own backyards with all the things a place like Trinity continues to do, to be obedient and steadfast. Amen.